Today we're going to look at a strange little story of a shady guy that Jesus uses to make a point. And through this story, we're going to be really challenged to figure out what our hearts truly value. And so let me just set it up this way. How many of you, and you can raise your hand, but you don't have to, how many of you have ever been fired from a job that was kind of your fault? Yeah, we got plenty of people that'll fess up. Like, you really didn't show up to work. One time, uh, one time, and I didn't get fired. I was like thinking, have I ever gotten fired from, from, from a job? And uh, actually, no, but I had uh, one time in high school, my, my best friend and I, we, were, we filled in for this guy that owned a janitorial company. And whenever he'd leave and go on a trip or something, we'd fill in for him and do commercial cleaning around the, the valley in different places. And uh, we didn't love it, but it was money and we were in high school, right? And I remember we were cleaning around Christmas time one year. And we're probably about 17 years old. And uh, as, as we're cleaning, we show up at this one office, which will remain nameless because I'm not quite sure about the statute of limitations. Uh, we'll just, you know, leave that nameless because this is on the recording. <clears throat> but we show up at this one office and walk in and the place was a wreck. They had had what appeared to be a raging Christmas party. I mean, you know, there were like booze bottles left all over. The place was just a wreck. And we got paid by the job, not by the hour, you know? And so it's like, no, you know, we were just so upset about it. So after uh, throwing a bit of a fit, we, we got our act together and started cleaning. But then we had the mischievous idea of, since they left it in this state for us, let's just mess with them. And so we moved office chairs from like one end of the office suite all the way down to the other one. We moved pictures in people's offices <clears throat> from one office to the other. We figured, I, I don't know, we figured they'd come back in and be like, man, you know, how much did I have to drink that night? I don't know. But anyway, uh, and because we never told anybody and we never got found out, uh, I didn't get fired. We didn't get fired. Uh, and uh, we filled in for this guy for a while. But some of you, you've gotten fired. And, you know, maybe you were just too much time on Instagram. And so you heard it, you got called in, and you know this is coming, right? And in the midst of that whole process, you know you deserve it, but at the same time, at the same time you start freaking out, right? And going, now what am I gonna do? How am I gonna pay the bills? That's the setup, that's the scene that Jesus sets here in this little parable we're gonna look at here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're gonna be in verse one. And just to remind you that this is a really one of, it's kind of funny doing research for this message because there's so many different opinions on this little parable. And the reason is because a lot of commentators just can't believe that Jesus would use this totally corrupt, shady guy we're going to look at in a minute to make a good point. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He, he takes this guy that does this horrible thing and gives us an example out of it. And so that's what we're going to look at here today and remind you a parable is a made-up story that Jesus tells in order to illustrate a point, okay? So that's what a parable is. So here's the parable. Luke chapter 16 verse 1 says this, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, you know, this guy was on the job, but he was showing up and he embezzled, he wasted, whatever he did, we don't know. He didn't do a good job. So he called them in and asked them, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my management 
my manager any longer. You're done, you're through, but before you're out of here, I need to know how all this went down. Verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so here's what he did. This guy's shady. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's equivalent to three years' salary. So this guy says, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. We'll just cut that in half. How about that? Does that sound good? I'm sure the guy's like, you bet. Give me that thing, right? Let's do it. Verse 7. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied, which is the equivalent of about nine years' wages. And so he said, take your bill and make it 800, he says. Now, here's what's going on. So a manager in this parable, the the Greek word uh, oikonomos, it means the law in the house. And so he was the one delegated with authority to act for the owner. So he had the legal authority to do the shady deal he just did. Think of this, this manager as the equivalent of a shady stockbroker handling somebody else's money in very poor ways, right? And then when he's found out, what he does is he cooks the books in order to help himself out in the situation, which, if you're a business owner, which is why if you've ever been fired or if you've ever fired someone, you probably didn't let them hang out for the next couple of weeks, right? You, in the corporate world, I mean, if you get fired, what do they do? That somebody watches you pack up your desk and then security escorts you to the door. This is exactly why. You know, somebody read the scripture and said, oh yeah, okay, enough people got ripped off, you know. Now, here, here's the shocking part of the story. Verse eight, the master commended. He commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. In other words, like from, from one crafty, cunning mind to another, he's like, well, he ripped me off, but boy, got to give the guy props for being clever, huh? Because he looks at his situation and goes, I've got nothing. I don't want to dig. I'm too weak. You know, my biceps, I've just been, I've been working the hooks too long. I, I haven't been working out. That'd kill me. And come on, I'm kind of used to this high lifestyle now. There's no way I'm going to go out and become a beggar. I'm too ashamed to do that. And so he figures out a clever scheme so that as soon as he loses the privilege here, he will have, in, in a culture, first century culture that is motivated by honor and shame, he would have uh, obligated these guys, especially when he brought more than one in, because he could have gone to the other one and, and created shame for this other one. So they would have been obligated by honor to provide for him after this amazing you know, gift that he gave to them, as shady as it all was. And the master looks at this guy and goes, props, like, okay, I, I, I saw this guy driving around town. Maybe you've seen this too. And I'm not making any judgment statements on people that panhandle um, because, you know, there's people with legitimate need and then there's people not, right? But this guy was standing out on the street corner and his sign said, not going to lie, I just want a beer. And that's the kind of thing. You see that guy, you're like, kind of like, well, 
give you props. At least you're honest, right? At least you're clever. I'm sure that works pretty well for you. And that's the kind of idea here. Now remember, and this is where commentators kind of get goofy on this because Jesus is not commending the actions of this guy. Oftentimes in parables, the master is, represents God. Not in this one. Jesus is not commending this guy's shady, corrupt behavior. Parables are made up stories to make a point. And so what's the point? Here's the point. He gets to it. He says, for people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, he's going to get to it. Now, there's all sorts of principles you might be able to draw here about, you know, followers of Jesus, people of the light. This is talking about followers of Jesus, about, you know, being good in business practice and, and all that. And maybe you can draw those lessons, but that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is right here in verse 9. So I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That is the punchline. That's the point. And, and, and the story, the point he's making here is when you look at these groups of people, he uses this, this crafty, shady, corrupt guy to illustrate a point that people who are not following God, they plan ahead and are very diligent about securing their future. They look at what's coming down the road and are very diligent about making sure they're going to be okay, making sure they come out ahead. And Jesus says, people who don't follow me, people who not are the light, do this better sometimes than people who follow me. Sometimes people who don't follow Jesus do a better job of looking into the future and anticipating it than followers of Jesus who understand that this life is really short. Who understand that you can't take anything with you, right? Who understand that eternity is a really, real long time? And yet they don't plan ahead. They don't look into the future. And so what Jesus is saying through this is you have an opportunity now to take worldly wealth, which one day will be gone or will fail in a lot of translations. And it will fail, right? Some of you, you might have friends. I have a friend seen this, made millions and, and lost everything. Wealth failed. One poor business decision, right? Some of you have seen something like that. Maybe you've experienced something like that in your life where you've had a place of security and it failed you. But the bottom line is for every one of us, there is a point when wealth fails us. And that is a point when what? We die. You cannot take it with you. And Jesus says, so you have an opportunity now to take that thing, that thing that, that will be gone one day anyway, and invest it now into life after this life, which is what? A whole lot longer. Eternity, right? So how do you do that? How do you do that? You do this by being generous to those in need and investing generously in kingdom work where the gospel's proclaimed. 
He says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Be generous to those in need and invest generously in kingdom work where the gospel is proclaimed. That's how you do this. Another passage, a little while back, we looked at this last fall when we were in this section. Luke 12, 31, Jesus says, but seek his kingdom. Matthew says, seek first God's kingdom. And the idea of seeking is going after it with everything you've got, making it your number one priority, the top thing in your life. And these things, he's been talking about having anxiety about money and what we have in our lives and how much stress we feel over that sometimes. And these things will be given to you as well. Then he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves or, or savings accounts or 401ks. This is the equivalent, right? Of, for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so being generous to others, Jesus literally says, is a way to store up treasure in heaven. And Proverbs actually says that those who lend to the poor lend to God. Pretty safe bet. Safe haven, right? And that's the point. So you use money to be generous, to love people. And, and this bottom of this is such a key. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The way I use my resources shows what my heart truly values. It reveals what my heart truly values. Do I value people? Do I value eternity? Do I value God's kingdom? The way I use my stuff, my relationship with my stuff, reveals what my heart really values. And this is called the treasure principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The, the, I call it the inverse treasure principle is where, you, where do you want your heart to be? Number one, it reveals where your heart is, so where do you want your heart to be? Then you start investing into that. You start investing into where you want your heart to be. So you be generous. You, you love people. This is, this is across the world, right? This is Mexico and homes of hope when we, we do that. This is compassion, child perhaps. This is giving to a crisis, a world need. This is, this is all those things, right? But it's also next door, isn't it? It's paying attention when that neighbor really needs help or maybe a single mom just needs a little extra support, right? Or a neighbor or co-worker's friend breaks down and you say, well, borrow mine. Wow, wow, why? Because I love Jesus. And followers of Jesus are generous people, right? And have you noticed there's a direct connection between being generous and having friends? Most generous people don't have trouble having friends, right? And here's the thing. Friendship influences people. And there's people, by living with a generous spirit in your life, you may have the opportunity to influence towards Jesus that you would never otherwise have the opportunity to influence. Because your ultimate goal is to show him Jesus, right? He says, going back to chapter 16, verse 9, he says, Use worldly wealth to do what? Gain friends for yourselves. 
And the idea here is money won't last, but people you have reached or people that have been reached through your faithfulness and through your generosity, that will last. And in fact, there's this idea, and this brings up this picture for me of when you get to heaven, people going who, who've reached there before you, and they're like, wow, you're here. I'm here because of you. And some of those people you would never have known. Some of those people you've never met. And this is the idea. Somebody finds you in eternity and goes, oh, I'm here because of you, because you sacrificed, because you were generous, because you invested in the things of the kingdom. You invest your resources so that people can join you eternally. Imagine, you probably have some good friends in your life. And just imagine... You know those evenings when maybe you have a, a, a barbecue and you've got just the best friends hanging out and it's just this great conversation and maybe you've got a good glass of wine, you know, if, or maybe not, you know, if decaf coffee for some, that's fine, you know, whatever. But you're just hanging out and you're having a great evening and the time flies, right? And there's something about that that at the end of the evening your soul is fed you know that feeling, that, those kind of friendships? And I think there's that idea in here of imagine that now of making those friendships with some new people you've never met. And those friendships, that soul feeding friendship goes on forever. You've just made friends forever. Forever. And that's the idea here is you have the opportunity to invest, to gain friends for eternity to gain friends for eternity. And that's a pretty rich thought, isn't it? Jesus goes on and he presses into this a little bit more. Whoever can be trusted, or most translations say is faithful, whoever is faithful, whoever can be trusted or is faithful with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy, faithful in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And so Jesus is saying here, are you being faithful with a little? Are you being faithful with a little? It's an issue of faithfulness. You have to be faithful and little. And this is a principle that carries through across so many different areas of life, not just financially, but in leadership. People so often want to jump from here to here, but they haven't been faithful here. And they want more responsibility. You've seen this probably. How do you gain more responsibility? You're faithful now. Young people, how do you get to the place you want to get? You're faithful now, right? You're faithful now in this season. And, and the amazing thing is when you are faithful and you show up and you're faithful day after day after day, there's this amazing thing that happens. And just before you know it, you find yourself in a whole new place. Think about Moses. Before God raised him up to lead his people, he did what for 40 years? Shepherd. He faithfully shepherds sheep. Think about Joshua. Joshua, before God raised him up as a great leader, he did what? He served Moses. For 40 years, he served Moses. He probably brought him cups of water and, you know, not too glamorous, but he was faithful. David, also a shepherd, right? 
before God raised him up to kill giants and lead a nation. You're faithful with little. And here's the error we make in this faithfulness conversation is we, we, we have this mindset that when I have more, then I will be faithful. When I have more, then I'll be generous. When I have more or when I get to this place in life, then. And that is an error. The truth is it works exactly opposite. You are faithful now with a little bit. You are faithful to be generous with a little bit, even when it's tough. You're faithful to live this with a little bit. And then that carries through when you have a lot. It's the way it works. You know, the thing is, everybody thinks that if they won the lottery, they would do good things with it, right? I do. Do you? Everybody. It's like, well, I know the statistic. Everybody that wins the lottery, their lives get ruined in like two years and they're back to poverty, but not me. I would actually do a pretty good job with it. And I think I would. So maybe I'm just deluded. Not that I play the lottery, but you know. And here's the idea is it when, when you receive more, you're just a magnif- magnified version of who you are now. So if you can't f- be generous, if you can't be faithful now in the little, in all areas of your life, when you get more, you're not going to be. Your relationships and your finances, are you faithful now? Are you faithful now? That's the big question to ask, isn't it? It's an issue of faithfulness. And it's an issue of understanding stewardship. Anybody ever said, drive it like you rented it? If something is someone else's, you should take even better care of it. You should be even more careful with it. As a follower of Jesus, you see it in this scripture, you see it in a lot of other places. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? And the idea is as a follower of Jesus, we understand that everything we have, we don't own. God owns it all. We are just, it's a trust. It's a stewardship. That's what it means. We are a manager, just like this guy. The question is, are we going to be a faithful manager? of what he's given. And a great conversation to have, perhaps you've never done this, if you're, if you're married or maybe you're, you're just young and you're like, you know, I'm just kind of starting out this thing. I haven't even started thinking this way yet. But is actually to say, you know, let, let's pray about it and ask God, God, how do you want us to manage what you've given? How do you want us to steward it? How do you want us to invest and be generous in things that bring fruit in eternity. You know, if you're here and you're a parent, one of the best things you can do for your kids at a very young age is teach them the discipline of tithing. This is something my parents did for me. And so that every time you, you know, a dollar comes in, a dime goes in that envelope, and then we save that up, and then we give that. And it's a a great thing. It's something that, you know, it's a lot easier to learn the discipline when it's pennies and dimes, right? still a challenge. You know, we're working on this with our kids right now, right? It's a challenge. But to get that pattern set in your heart that I don't own this, that God owns this, and I give back. And this is a discipline I've had in my life for years and years. And it's something I'm so glad that my parents taught me. All right, Jesus goes on. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And see, this is, 
There's some things we look at and, and go, well, you know, that was really in a first century context, and it's kind of hard to translate through to today. This isn't one of those, is it? Not in our culture. And this isn't a rich or poor thing. This is just a people thing. And when it talks about money here, literally the word is mammon. And it carries more than just money in your bank account. It carries the idea of material possessions, all your stuff, your resources, right? All your stuff. And Jesus says here, you cannot simultaneously serve God and stuff. It just doesn't work. See, this isn't an issue of saying you can't work two jobs. You know, some of you, you work three or four, right? You can do that. But for somebody in this culture where they would understand indentured servitude or being a slave, you can only have one thing owning you and guiding and directing you in your life, right? And Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. You're either going to allow God to be the person who guides and directs the, the direction, or, or, or you're going to allow your stuff to be the thing that rules. You can't simultaneously have both of those. And a lot of people try and fail. And this idea of loving and hating, it's a Hebrew idiom, and it means the order of preference. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to hate God. But what it means is one of them's going to win over and be the first in preference and priority. Which one holds your heart, God or stuff? Remember what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the question is, what does my heart truly value, right? What does my faithfulness reveal about what my heart actually values? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? As you look at your life. Now, so Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, but we figure out here there's another group of people that's kind of listening in. Verse 14, it says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he turned and said to him, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That pride, that prestige that comes with riches and that tendency in our hearts to get puffed up, the envy and comparison over all the things that money can buy, right, that makes us feel superior to others, God detests that. He detests that. See, the issue here isn't money. The issue is the love of money. This is the Pharisees who loved money. Remember, these guys were the most religious guys. They knew the scriptures better than anybody. In fact, they even tithed better than anybody. You remember a few chapters back, they, they didn't just tithe their income. They got in the mint garden, you know, and like counted out the leaves. They were detailed, but, but it wasn't in their heart. They, they neglected mercy and compassion. Remember that? Jesus says, you've, you've, you did that, that's good. Keep doing that, don't neglect that. But, but mercy and compassion, that's where it's really at. That's where it's really at. That's where the heart of God's at. And they neglected that. And they sneer at Jesus here. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
And some people eager for money has, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, the love of money. And at the time, in the culture, they had this idea that wealth means, wow, you must be blessed by God. And poverty means, wow, God must be ignoring you or not pleased with you. Over and over and over again, Jesus and then the apostles like Paul who wrote this, Paul really takes the words of Jesus and translates them for the rest of the Gentile world, helps them become real practical for us. They, they counter this over and over and over again. In fact, the Jewish sages after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and then short time later, the, uh, all, basically all the whole Jewish nation was hauled off into an exile. The rabbis, a couple hundred years later, as they taught and went, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did God allow this? Remember, these aren't people who believe in Jesus, but here's what they concluded. They said they, talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time, they labored in Torah. In other words, they studied the scriptures hard and they were careful in tithes. Why then were they exiled? Because they loved money and hated one another. It was a heart issue, right? Paul says this in 1 Timothy. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, the issue isn't having or not having. And just incidentally, because when you read the scripture, everybody's like, whoo, Glad I'm off the hook. If you make over about $40,000 a year, you are in the top 2 or 3% of wage earners in, in the world. I know we don't feel rich, but this is just the reality, right? We're just insulated from it. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In other words, there's some people God is just blessed with wealth and that's an amazing thing if they use it right. He says, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This idea of treasure that goes beyond this life, it's all over scripture. It's all over scripture. But it's not just a rich or poor thing. Like this isn't just something for rich people. Paul has another one in Ephesians. For those who are so poor... See, you can be poor and totally fixated on money all the time, just as easy as you can be rich and have money own you and stuff own you. He says this, anyone who has been stealing, in other words, they're so poor, they've been stealing to provide for their needs, must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to what? Share with those in need. See, the motivation is not just to acquire. Even if you're poor, the motivation isn't just to, to meet your own needs. The motivation is what? Generosity. To share. That's what it's all about. And back to Luke 16. Why is this so important? Because God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. And he looks at these guys and he says, God knows your hearts. You appear faithful to everybody else on the outside, but God knows your hearts. And you can lie to everybody else. You can fool everybody else. You can show up every week if you want. But God knows your heart. God knows what is really in control of your heart. Where your affections and your allegiances lie, right? And whatever you do, don't, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Be honest with yourself and with God. 
How can you tell where your heart is when it comes to money? I just jotted down a few thoughts here. If we have money for the latest model smartphone, but don't have any money to give, perhaps it's time to check our hearts, right? If we have a couple hundred extra for, per month for a fancier car, but don't have money to give, perhaps that's a good time to check our hearts. If we have an extra 1000 per month for, for the house with the bigger master bath, but don't have anything to give or be generous with, perhaps it's time to check our hearts, right? When we're willing to go into debt for consumer goods, but unwilling to maintain a discipline of giving, perhaps it's time to check our hearts. Here's another one, because this comes from the Pharisees. When we're disciplined in giving, but never willing to give extra out of compassion, even though we have enough or more than enough, might be time to check our hearts. When we begin to think of our possessions and our finances as ultimately ours instead of God's, definitely time to check our hearts. And here's the thing. Here's what you got to know. And if you're new around here or if you're just checking out God, church, and the Bible, and you're like, see, I knew it. These preachers, they're always just after your money. No, no, no. That's not at all what's going on. Ask anybody. We almost never talk about money here, right? But when you're preaching verse by verse through the Bible a couple times a year, this is a huge thing. Jesus talks about money, about a third of his parables in some way have to do with this. Why? Because it has a hold on our hearts. And he knows it. And he knows you can't serve God and money simultaneously. It just doesn't work. And so this isn't, I'm not asking anything from you. What I want for you is to really live as a true follower of Jesus in freedom and serving him. And so if you're maybe skeptical or just checking out church or, or whatever, and, and you've been turned off by, say, late night televangelists that just it feels so slimy and it's always about money. And if you send it in, you know, if you give one, God's going to give 10, you know, that whole deal. It just feels so manipulative. It's not what's going on here, okay? That turns me off too, big time. That turns me off. But here's what I want to remind you of. For thousands of years now, the vast majority of incredible charitable works around this world, of educational organizations, including all of the Ivy League schools in this nation, and healthcare organizations in this world, they were all originally started by followers of Jesus who understood this principle who understood that there's something about generosity, about not being owned, about giving and investing in the kingdom. Followers of Jesus who loved people and used their money to love people. Get that. Followers of Jesus love people and use money, not vice versa. Like Winston talked about last week, using people. Followers of Jesus love people and use money to do so. So, we've got three little verses, and we're going to close this out. And I know it's just, you know, anytime we talk about money, it's a little, but it's not, it's just Jesus. I'm just reading what he said, right? And so, because it's so heavy, we're just going to make it a little heavier in here, okay? Yeah. So, here we go. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. So remember, he's been talking to these Pharisees. And here's the, kind of the funny thing about this. If you're reading your Bibles, 
Most of them have a little heading in there that goes additional teachings. In other words, you're like, well, this feels kind of random. We're not sure. So we'll just call these three verses additional teachings. But they, I think they really tie in in the order of what Luke is saying as he's inspired by God here, as he puts these verses in here and quotes Jesus. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. So remember, he's just talking to these Pharisees who the issue is their hearts. God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. That's really tricky. Um, what does that mean? Here's what I think it means as you look at it. It's the idea of what he says, like the kingdom of God should be pursued like a pearl of great price. You give up everything to go after it. The kingdom of God is worth more than anything. The kingdom of God, like the idea behind seeking the kingdom of God, it's forceful, right? And so it's kind of a tricky Greek word, but that's what I think he's saying is people, all different kinds of people, that's what the Greek means, all different kinds of people, it can mean that, are coming into the kingdom of God and they're, they're going for it. They want to be part of it. Verse 17, but just in case, so the law and the prophets, John was the transitional one, and all the law and the prophets, which is the whole Old Testament, he says, was all pointing to this moment, all finds its culmination in this moment when now Jesus comes and introduces the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes and breaks into history, this is the turning point, okay? This was all pointing towards Jesus, leading up to Jesus. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But then in case you think, Jesus says, in case you think that means everything we learned goes out the window, you know, no, no, no. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. In other words, you think the moral code has just went away, you know, now we can kind of do whatever we want because we have forgiveness in, in Christ. No, no. Do we have grace and forgiveness? Yes, yes. But actually we are called to live at a higher standard. It's called the law of the spirit, the law of love in Christ. Big themes in a short time. But he goes on and he illustrates this. It's about faithfulness still. It's about faithfulness. And then he says here, he pulls an example out. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what's going on here? It's a pretty heavy little thing Jesus drops in here, Right? See why I'm like, okay, Winston, uh, you know, here, here's what you get to preach on. As we laid out the passages here, I, I thought, well, as Winston was preaching, I'm like, let's, let's just give him the prodigal son one, you know, everybody's favorite parable. But here's what you got to realize about this. This verse set right in here is not meant to give us, uh, to present the whole theology, Christian New Testament theology on divorce or on remarriage. That's not what's going on here. This is in here as an illustration of the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. And, and here's why. Because in the time, uh, you know, one of the commandments, Moses permitted people to get a divorce because of what was called uncleanness. It wasn't real super specific. And, and what they did is they took that. And one of the leading rabbis in Jesus' time, his name is Hillel, he said basically and taught that you could get a divorce for any reason. At least the man could. See, it was a very male-dominated society. And they could put away or divorce a woman for any reason whatsoever. She burnt the soup, you're out of here. 
Somebody, you know, a little better looking comes along. You're out of here. And he looks at the hardness of their hearts and he goes, oh yeah, you guys, you know, the kingdom of God is here. It's a brand new day. And let me give you an illustration of something you just pushed aside when it comes to faithfulness. Because the prophets talked all over about being faithful to your wife, being faithful. And Jesus goes, you guys have just, as much as you love the scriptures, you've just pushed this to the side, right? And that's what's going on here. And so you got to take this and put it together with Jesus' other teachings and, and the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians to, to get a framework for, you know, the big teaching in the New Testament on divorce. And we don't have time to do that today, but we will do that some other time when we hit those passages, right? But just so you hear it for me, if you're in the room, and I know in a room this size, there's a lot of people who have been through a divorce. And some of you, you would say that was my fault. And others, you would go, I didn't even want it. I fought for my marriage, right? And what I can tell you is for anyone who's been through it, you would never wish that on any other person, would you? Because you know the pain and the heartache that it brings. If you're here and you've been through a divorce, God has good things for you. There's forgiveness. There's grace. You start where you're at and you follow Jesus, right? You press into him. One thing Jesus does continually over and over and over and over again, he raises the standard, doesn't he? But then when we don't meet the standard, he doesn't condemn us. He offers us grace instead, right? You see this with adultery, right, in other spots. He says, if you've ever looked lustfully on a woman, you've already committed adultery. Oh, oops. Yeah. Or how about... I've never murdered anyone. No, if you've ever hated your neighbor, you've already murdered them in your heart. And here's the thing. Jesus always raises the standard, but then he doesn't condemn when we don't meet it. And when we come with repentance, he doesn't condemn. He doesn't condemn. You see this with the woman at the well. You see this in the woman caught in adultery, which incidentally, where was the dude? That was the law, bring them both there, right? This is the culture. This is what Jesus is dealing with in this culture. Woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you, but now go and sin no more. Don't do this. It's gonna bring death and destruction in your life. And so the, the point here is Jesus calls us to faithfulness in our relationships. He calls us to faithfulness. And that's not condemnation if, if you've not been there in the past, but going forward, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called the faithfulness. That's the standard. You're called to give it all you've got. You're called to love. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, right? Wives, respect your husbands. A lot of other teaching too on this. That's the, that's the standard. And so what we see when we put this whole passage together, this parable about this, this crazy guy, this teaching on finance, and then this little section that says additional teachings, here's, here's what you see. It's all about faith, faithfulness, that followers of Jesus should be characterized by faithfulness in their marriages, with each other, in their relationships, in their purity, 
well, they're dating, faithfulness, faithfulness in finances and in generosity and investing in the kingdom of God. This idea of faithfulness comes back over and over. And here's the question for you as we close today. What does my faithfulness reveal about what my heart actually values? See, because for Jesus, it always comes back to the heart because everything flows from the heart. What does my faithfulness reveal about what my heart actually values? It's a good question to ask because we can say what we value because we know the right answer in our head. But this is a more useful question because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks because we live out of the abundance of our hearts, right? And so is there an area in your life that God needs you to dial in a little bit on when it comes to faithfulness that the Holy Spirit is prompting you on? Are you being faithful with God's stuff, with the resources? Have you asked him, how do you want me to manage this? Are you being faithful and generous? Are you generous? Are you faithful in your heart, not just with outward appearances? Are you being faithful in your relationships? Are you being faithful in your life for purity? And here's what you do with this. If you don't like what you observe about what your heart actually values, you need to ask God to align your heart with his. And then you need to start taking small, concrete steps of faithfulness. Whether that's in your finance, just say, you know what? We're going to do it. We're going to be faithful. We're going we're to give, right? Why? Because your heart will follow your treasure. And you need to ask forgiveness for past unfaithfulness. Why? Because the gospel is good news. Jesus died so that we could have forgiveness, so we could walk in freedom and in life and in the power of his Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to stand right now. Let me just pray over you. Lord, thank you that you say in your word there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. That if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Thank you that you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we can walk in new life in you. And so, Lord, as we look at this kind of heavy passage, each, each person here, if there's a place in their heart that you're asking them to press in to a deeper level of faithfulness in their life, Lord, pray you give them the courage to do it. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.